helps it. Beer helps your tooth not hurt? Well, it helps my tooth hole. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It's good for your tooth hole? It's good for my tooth hole, it, uh, except when it squirts out my nose, which it does right <laughs> now. <laughs> um, I did it the other night with like a white claw, and it's got like carbonation in it. It <laughs> really, really burned. <laughs> uh, gross. Yeah. Well, um, I'm glad that your tooth isn't going to kill you with infection, at least. Yeah, probably not. Uh, the beer should keep it clean, with what with the alcohol and all. <laughs> Van Hagar! <laughs> Are we still testing for levels? Uh, yes, sort of. Not exactly, but... Mm, okay. All right, well, uh... All right, well... Well... Well, uh, welcome once again to the Raincoat Report. This is Boss alongside Jeremy here. Hello. He has... uh, They took my teeth away. Yeah. But just two of them. Were they they wisdom teeth? No, they were... uh, I had my wisdom teeth out like eight years ago, and then these teeth just decided to start rotting. I uh, guess. I don't they, know. Were they back teeth? Yeah, they were back teeth. Okay. Yeah. Um, and now they're gone, and now I can taste blood all the time. <laughs> uh, well, that's that's a nice superpower that you've got there. Yeah, it sucks. Um, well, dentist is expensive. Uh, yeah, especially if you don't have is. insurance. Ooh, yeah. yeah. It was like $500 to get these teeth popped out of my head, and it hurts, and... They didn't. They gave me Tylenol three, which really doesn't do very much except make you tired. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's not quite. Uh, you know. No, I, I took a hydrocodone from my mom though and floated away for a while on my couch. <laughs> that was nice. <laughs> well, at least you got that going for you. Yeah. Yep. Uh, another great thing that you have going for you is uh, you got to watch Corruption once again. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was that was good. It's a it's a movie. It sure is a movie, and it's, it's it's like a real movie almost. Yeah, it's like an art film because I really didn't understand it. <laughs> uh, yeah, basically. So uh, yeah, we're talking about uh, Roger Watkins' film Corruption uh, from nineteen eighty. I think eighty three. Eighty three. That eighty three sounds sound right. That sounds right. That sounds about right, you know. I know it like was nominated for an XRCO award uh, for best female performer for Kelly Nichols um, in 1985, but I think the film had been out. They don't. Yeah, it's 1983. You're right. Yeah, they don't handle films like the Academy does. They'll just give awards for like stuff that happened ten years ago. It seems like. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're they're operating in a different way. That's true. So yeah, uh, Roger Watkins' 1983 film, Corruption, is our topic today. Um, Let's talk a little bit about uh, Roger Watkins, the director. I don't know anything about him, so just let me know and I'll intervene, interject. Uh, Okay, well, uh, I don't really know a ton about him. I didn't do a whole lot of research. Yeah. But uh, Corruption is one of several hardcore films he did. He also did a few non-hardcore films, including his debut, Last House on Dead End Street, 
which is actually available on the Blu-ray of Corruption that Vinegar Syndrome put out as a hidden special feature Easter egg thing. Uh, and it's actually a kind of cool uh, 70s horror snuff film fest. Yeah, I found it on the menu screen, but I haven't watched it yet. Um, so that's something I still need to check out. I wasn't sure if it was pornographic or not. Uh, it is not, uh, but it's worth seeing. I'm going to check it out. All right, uh, you should do that. The I'm looking at the Blu-ray from Vinegar Syndrome that you have, and I'm reading the little like review blurb, and it says, Corruption is the adult film equivalent to Flashdance, mind-blowing and bizarre, from Screw Magazine. Yeah, there is a um, there's a still gallery on that Blu-ray, mm-hmm. and it shows a bunch of different posters. And that tagline is used all over the place on like all of the posters. Have you seen Flashdance? I I don't think I've seen Flashdance. I've definitely not seen it, so I can't. I have a strong feeling that it's not like Corruption. Yeah, I don't think probably most of the things that happen in this movie would happen <laughs> in Flashdance. Um, Cer- certainly not the necrophilia. Yeah, probably not. I would probably be more interested in seeing Flashdance if it was more like Corruption. Uh, I mean, perhaps I've been wrong this whole time, and it is like Corruption, and I should really see Flashdance. Okay. You wanna, I don't think that's the case, though. Do you want to review Flashdance for a future episode if it does turn out to be pretty similar? Uh. Honest, yes. If it ends up being similar to Corruption, I might want to enter uh, to uh, review Flashdance on a later episode. Good. <laughs> um, tell me more about old Roger. Um, I really didn't have a lot else to say about him. Oh, well. um, so, but he is, you know, he has 10 directing credits to his name. Uh, starting back in 73 all the way through 88. Mm-hmm. Um, on the Blu-ray for Corruption, there is an interview with the uh, cinematographer on the film, Larry Ravine. Yeah. And he talks a little bit about working with uh, Roger Watkins, and he says that he was you know, a really great director to work with. He talks about how Roger was the type of person who would take feedback from the crew and um, you know, was trusted his crew to get stuff done. So there were certain things that Larry himself suggested that they do that Roger was on board with. And it, it seemed like they made a good team. The cinematography is excellent. I think lots of yes, lots of very nice like colors that pop out. Lots of really deep shadows. Yeah, I, I think that like that's something that really stands out is the use of shadows in it. Yeah, because it's the sort of thing that. Uh, Shadows are the sort of thing that in a lot of traditional productions you're trying to avoid to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. But uh, he went all out with this one, and you know they use shadows in a way that do- that doesn't obscure things in a bad way. It no, just more it, gives it, the, the the image a lot of texture. Yeah, that kind of like heightens like a lot of the uh, a lot of the tension of the film too, with a lot of it being you know just draped in darkness. You can't really penetrate, which is pretty similar to how like they uh did things in like 1930s horror films too just build yeah. a lot of shadow to uh had the fact that it's probably a fairly cheap movie right right um but i'm a fan i don't like to look at stuff in general so the more you can hide the more i want to see 
Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, in addition to uh, Corruption, Vinegar Syndrome's put out a couple of his other hardcore films that I've watched. Uh, the Pink Ladies and Her Name Was Lisa. Oh. Uh, both of those we'll probably end up getting around to at some point. Um, her name was Lisa is super bleak. <laughs> this one's pretty bleak too, though. Uh, it's it's a different level of bleak, though. That's fair. It's, it's less arty bleak and more just uh, exploitation bleak. Uh, but Let's definitely watch that. I'd like to be sad while I'm also horny. <laughs> sad and horny. Yeah, most of my life. Yeah. It's when your penis cries tears for you. No, that's ejaculation. Oh. Yeah. You oh. Didn't, did you not have sex ed? No. Okay, well, we're going to pause the episode and talk about sex ed for a little bit. And when we come back, um, you'll hopefully be up and up on the birds and the bees. Out of curiosity, uh, did you get sex ed in Catholic school? I did, but I was sick for most of the week that we had it, so I missed it. So whenever people would make masturbation jokes for about two years, I would laugh until I finally was like, let's look this up in the dictionary. I was <laughs> like, Haha, yeah, that's a, that sure is a funny word y'all are saying. <laughs> that's, uh, that's pretty good. I was going to try to go deeper on the subject of uh, Catholic school... Uh, sex ed with you, but I guess uh, uh, we can't go to Basically, deep. they don't want you to have it until you're right. married is the main thing. Um, we did watch a video of kind of like a lady who was just like, oh, sex feels great, but you should never, ever have it. <laughs> uh, which was a very confusing message to me. Um, it's like, ice cream is delicious, but never eat it. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to go have sex right now. It was a little 12-year-old, but I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God. Uh, it's it's kind of hard to hook up when you're a 12-year-old, and that's probably a good thing overall. Yeah. I think for the most part. Um, we could probably just leave that as is. Don't bang 12-year-olds. Well, yeah, that was... To be clear, that was not my uh, intention to advocate for banging 12-year-olds. No, but just in case, you know, someone gets a, like an idea of, in their own head. Well, if you remember from our from our Hot and Saucy Pizza Girls episode, uh, the mayor of the town that Anchovy lived in, uh, Jim Earl, he said that the only thing better than a 13-year-old is a ripe 12-year-old. Oh, yeah, but he was like the mayor in an Alabama town, so... Yeah, I'm I I'm not advocating for this once again. Their, I want to be clear. <laughs> their education system was probably worse than the Catholic education that I. Uh, their sexual education is probably non-existent. Yeah, probably. I'd say uh, overall we should not use them as any sort of uh, gauge for anything that we mm-hmm. ever do. Yeah. Uh, Alabama, you're out of the union. Yeah, I think. Uh, Neil Young sang about Alabama. Yeah, a couple times. He did not like that place. Yeah, I don't he, blame him. He must have had a bad time there, which I understand. Yeah. Leonard Skinner was upset, though. Um, They sure were, but then they all, they all died in a plane crash. And <laughs> Neil Young's still releasing <laughs> albums. That's so, a good point. Yeah. He really won. 
Yeah, they backed the wrong horse. <laughs> um, another <laughs> another uh, key name in this film, in addition to the director, Roger Watkins, is the star, Jamie Gillis. Uh, I think on a previous episode, I mentioned him being one of my favorite uh, male actors in uh, this era of pornography. And this is a really good performance from him in this um Jamie Gillis got his start, uh, you know, in New York as a repertory actor, you know, doing stage acting. Right. And we talked a little bit about that on one of the past episodes. Right. He got into uh, the world of pornography the way that a lot of people did in the sense that he just kind of answered an ad and went to work more or less. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a fascinating character. So he has a real look. You know it's you know it's him. He uh yeah, he does. Um I I think that uh to me the big thing with his performances uh that I appreciate is his range. He has uh he's one of those guys that most of his acting he's doing at a very like kind of low relaxed level. Yeah. He's very subtle. And but he but in this film, like most of the film, he's being really subtle. But like he has these moments of explosion that really uh, land really well. Mm -hmm. I think because of his very uh, reserved acting through the film. I would Um, say so. uh, I'd say this movie just in general probably has some of the better like performances we've seen so far on an acting level. Yeah, yeah. Everyone does like a pretty good job, even like. Uh, Vanessa Del Rio and just like her very short line, like span yes. of time. She's like the rules never change, just the players, and you buy it. Yeah, she is kind of like uh, his hooker slash fortune teller. Uh, we'll get to that here in a bit, but uh, Jamie Gillis, there's uh, there's three episodes of the Rialto Report uh, about Jamie Gillis, and I listen to all of them, and they're interesting, but. His life seems just about as crazy as the lives of the characters in his films. Mm-hmm. Maybe not necessarily in like the surreal world of crime that he finds himself in in this film, but more in the sense of him just having crazy sex with people all the time. Oh. He was he he lived his life as a porn guy. Thank God. Um, for Jamie Gillis. He is a strange character. Um, you know any particular anecdotes you'd like to share about uh, Mr. Gillis? Uh, here's here's a Jamie Gillis uh, anecdote for you. All right. Um, in the Rialto Report interview with Sharon Mitchell, she talked mm-hmm. about how one time in the middle of the night she got a call from Jamie. Uh, and was like, hey, you need to come over here real quick, real quick. And so she rushed over to his apartment, and he was there. Uh, he <laughs> he had been uh, fucking this girl in the ass while her head was in the toilet. Oh, yeah? And apparently her uh, necklace got caught in the uh, trap at the bottom of the toilet bowl. Uh-huh. And because of that, her head was kind of stuck down there, and he kept having to flush the toilet repeatedly so right. she didn't drown. Right, to keep her alive. It's like a reverse waterboarding. Right. 
so that's a fun story and kind of speaks to uh, Jamie's wild, lascivious lifestyle. I kind of wish that had been in the movie. Yeah. That would have been good. <laughs> well, uh, we'll make a, a porn adaptation of Jamie Gillis's life and we'll put oh, it in the yeah. movie. That would be good. Yeah. The Nine Lives of Jamie Gillis. Yes. And his fucking crazy adventures. <laughs> yes. Exactly. All did right. They, did they say, did they just like, why didn't he just unclasp the necklace on his own? Um, I don't know. There wasn't, you know. There wasn't like a real resolution to the story. It was just kind of an anecdote. Uh, yeah, I mean, she just went over there and fixed it. Did he fuck her in the ass afterwards? Um, I have been given no information to make me think that that happened, but I haven't been given any information to make me think that that didn't happen. That'd be a pretty good reward, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a good story. Thank you. (laughs) In one of the podcast interviews I listened to, it ended with him talking about his mortality, which Mm. was interesting because I think it was done, you know, a few years before he passed away. Um, One of the things that he said was that in the 70s, he was asked, you know, how he wanted to go out and everything. And what he said was that he wanted his ashes sprinkled through Times Square because it was, you know, the best place on the earth to him at the time. I can understand that, especially in the 70s. Like, he'd see his name up in lights every week. Yeah. Jamie Gillis in Deep Throat 6. (laughs) Well, and he like he had uh, he had an apartment not necessarily near Times Square, but you know in dirty old New York of the seventies. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how uh, you know he would get he would get hookers all the time and all yeah. of that. And he talked about how there were times where he negotiated with hookers from his window. He would just yell out <laughs> to the street and see somebody and pick not him even, up. Not even really knowing, just kind of just throwing it out there. Yeah, more or less. He lived a wild life. So he talked about, he had talked about how he wanted his ashes spread through Times Square, but Mm. later on he decided that uh, he did not want that to happen because after Times Square got cleaned up, he just didn't want to be a part of it anymore, basically. That makes sense. He said that it wasn't so much that he was worried about contaminating the new clean Times Square. It was more that he was worried about it contaminating him. Well, yeah, like a, a metaphysical level, it would destroy everything he had worked for to be associated with the Disney-fied version of uh, Times Square. Exactly. Okay. That's, he's, that's pretty cool. He is a real-world sleazemeister, and for that, we appreciate him. Mm-hmm. Um you know, there there are things that if you listen to him long enough, you might think that maybe he doesn't have the best respect for women in the world or anything like well, that. Oh, no, he was hollering at any woman that passed by his window. <laughs> eh, come up here and suck this, eh? <laughs> he doesn't really have, like, an Italian accent, but... No, no, not really. No, I don't know where that came from. I think it's just a New Yorker thing. Yeah, it's okay. just... It's my New York accent. Oh, a fly almost went in my mouth. <laughs> I hope it doesn't get into my tooth hole. Oh, man. It's going to fly out your nose. Oh, fuck. (laughs) I saw you earlier sticking your finger in your mouth. Were you sticking your finger through your tooth hole and in through your nose? It doesn't go quite that far. I just like (laughs) to agitate it to keep it hurting. (laughs) 
Oh, okay. Yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, while you were talking, I got on my phone because I was reading the the back of the Blu-ray. Uh, Larry Ravine did the cinematography for Doom Asylum, which really yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, I watched it a couple weeks ago. It's definitely not as well shot as this. I think the budget they were working on might have even been like a quarter of Corruption's budget. <laughs> Well, that, that probably says a lot. Yeah. Uh, not a great movie. Kind of funny. Yeah. I, uh, was, I, I assume that it was cheesy. and Yeah, the killer delivers like a lot of one-liners. Yeah. Uh, and he hangs, he hangs around in an asylum, but I'm not really sure why still. Right. Um, not to get it too much into that movie, but he, uh, he takes it. He has a car crash and he goes to a morgue that's in an asylum. And then just decides to kill the people dissecting him because he's still alive. And then he stays in the asylum for another 20 years. <laughs> I don't know why they took him to an, a morgue asylum. I don't know if they even have morgues at an asylum in general. Yeah, I'm not sure that those are necessary no. at an asylum. When I worked at the psych hospital, uh, I never saw the morgue. Right. There wasn't a morgue room anywhere. Yeah. Uh, that's strange. Uh, Larry Ravine is also, uh, a notable character in the world of porn. He, yeah. he went back to the early days of just porno loops being shot and mm -hmm. stuff. He was, you know, one of the guys making those cheap loops of just, you know, oh, 10 cool. minutes of sex or whatever. That's cool. I saw he also directed a few films as well. Mm. Uh, he did Wanda Whips Wall Street, which I think I've seen on your, like, shelf so I'd yeah definitely be interested in watching those motherfuckers get whipped yeah uh that was a. Uh, I recall that being fun all right yeah we'll uh, uh we'll have to check it out yes i might be able to smell my mouth through my nose oh. <laughs> <laughs> neither one smells very good all right well with all of that in mind we'll go ahead and uh move into discussing corruption yeah 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 i believe in business i believe in honoring my contracts i believe that without honor all business becomes quite useless williams i'm glad to hear you say that really glad you don't know how glad. Because time is running out. We have a deal. I gave my word. So? So the deal will be honored. Everything tastes bad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sorry. All right, so we're here today to talk about corruption. From 1983, directed by Roger Watkins. The film opens up with a shot of Williams, played by Jamie Gillis, walking down some steamy steps, and then a freeze frame, and we see the credits on the screen. Yeah. Uh, Roger Watkins is... Uh, is uh, Under a pseudonym, what yeah, was it? Richard Mahler, M-A-H-L-E-R. Mahler. 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 Yeah, Richard Mahler. From there, we cut to this... Uh, kind of business meeting or what appears to be a business meeting yeah there's first. some guys in suits but 
everything they're saying is real cryptic and shady, so I don't really know what business they're in. They're in the business of doing low-life underworld things, it appears. Okay, good. Uh, so, in this room we have Williams, again, played by Jamie Gillis. Uh, we have Doreen, played by Tiffany Clark, who is Willis, uh, Williams' uh, girlfriend-slash-secretary. Girlfriend oh, okay. Her assistant. I didn't know she worked for him. I just assumed she was there for moral support. Uh, no, she works for him, too. That was the impression. I, You're probably that right. That comes up at some point, I think. I'm gonna. You've probably seen it more than I have at this point, so I'm going to yeah. allow it. All right. Uh, I'm pretty sure. Um, and then on the other side of this negotiation is Franklin, played by Michael Gaunt. Uh, and then there's also... Uh, Frederick, who disappears after this scene, yeah. played by Milton Ingley. Mm -hmm. But basically, uh, this back and forth is just a bunch of cryptic talk for which the audience doesn't have any uh, context for. No, it's very confusing. But uh, it is it makes sense once you know everything else in the film, but not necessarily up front. Right, which is fine. Um, so... It opens with Jamie looking out the windows. He's talking about honor and business and that he believes in honoring contracts. Franklin's happy about that, saying that they've done a tremendous amount of work for Williams. And he says, I'm sure you won't deny that. And Williams says, no. Um, that actual work is not at any point explained in this movie, but it's not important to the specific plot of the characters once we're in the situation no he's just in a very vaguely defined business frederick in his one line of the film says that he's sure that uh williams doesn't want to forfeit the fruits of our labor whatever that means yeah who knows uh franklin says that time is working against him and everybody's vulnerable someplace we cut from that very uh, inexplicit meeting. Yeah, it's inexplicable. We cut from that to a shot of Alan played by George Payne. Mm -hmm. George Payne's an interesting character as well. Is he? Did he do any? Did he do some Jamie Gillis type stuff? Um, no, not so much. He was more of a um, Larry Ravine in his interview on this disc mm -hmm. referred to him as being not as much of an actor and just more of a sex guy. Okay. But he does good acting in this film. Yeah, he's fine. I like him. I think, yeah. His character gets uh, quite dynamic as the film goes on. His character probably has like the most development, even if it makes the least amount of sense. Right. Um, but he uh, he made probably more of a name doing gay porn oh. than he did in straight porn but he also did straight porn as right, in this of film course. but yeah uh so alan played by george payne is uh walking into this rundown building it almost looks like a garage with a bunch of junk sitting yeah, around everywhere it's, yeah it's like a good yeah and there's a, a woman at the desk uh she's played by samantha, samantha fox yeah. alan asks if somebody's there and the woman at the desk says of course someone's here Alan says he believes she has something for him, and she says, but it really isn't for you, is it? More cryptic dialogue. Right. That 
She says, you're surprised to be here, aren't you? But not as surprised as we were when Mr. Williams first contacted us. To think that he'd come all the way here to do business with us quite nearly boggles the mind, doesn't it? Do you think this is hell? Um, it could be. It, the whole thing kind of has, like, that, un, that like, overworld, underworld kind of... They do, like, several kind of descents into it, in a way. Yes. Um, yeah, so I'm thinking maybe this is just... Uh, I think the business is hell. Yeah. Well, and, and the thing is, like, this film, to uh, cut forward a little bit, is really about a guy from the so-called overworld right. who gets dragged into the underworld. Yeah. And... Uh, Becomes corrupted. Oh, oh I get oh, it. I get it now. Yes. Wow. We finally figured it out. Uh, you just delivered the titular line of this film. It's oh. not in the film, but... Yeah, it's close enough. So, yeah, a bunch of cryptic stuff out of her. So he just asked her where it is, whatever he's there for. She says she's just the woman at the front desk, and she finally tells him that it's in there, but it won't be easy getting it to where it belongs. So he goes to the there that she pointed at uh, mm -hmm. through a doorway, and he ends up in a blue room. Yes. So we, we get into this sequence here where Alan progresses his way through three rooms. Right, and it's about this point I was like, I didn't think I was watching Twin Peaks. I better check and make sure I'm watching the right thing. <laughs> uh, well, it should have been pretty easy to see that it wasn't Twin Peaks when the shot started on a woman who's completely bottomless. No, I saw that in Twin Peaks. Oh, yeah, I forgot I mean, that episode. Yeah, it was in the movie. <laughs> So yeah, he goes into this first room, and it's a blue room. Uh, there's a woman in the middle in a blue bustier, no panties. So she tells Alan to sit in the chair and do nothing, and she uh, kind of has her leg up on this like uh, exam bed from a doctor's office, it almost looks like. Yeah. Uh, but it's, you know, a blue bed. Right. Uh, so she basically makes him watch while she masturbates. Mm -hmm. Just um, says things like, could you rely on yourself? Yeah. And, you know, uh, but before she, he gets to that, she gets to that. She tells him to come over and smell her pussy. Oh yeah. Forgot about that. Yeah. She says, there's something nice about the smell of a cunt. Isn't there, Alan? Something exciting, something forbidden. But yeah, she, uh, she, Gets to a point where she says she's given up on men, and she asks if Alan could do that, rely on himself and nobody else. He yeah. says he guesses so. She says that guessing so isn't good enough. Never mind, she says, and uh, she tells him that what he wants is beyond that door. Mm -hmm. So he walks into the next door, and it's the red room. The red room. Uh, and there, in that red room is a woman in a red bra and panties with thigh highs and garters. Mm -hmm. um, she undoes her bra in the front to reveal her breasts. Um, there are a lot of bras in this film that unclasp from the front. I think it was just a style at the time. I, I suppose. I, they're probably actually easier for porn than like the classic yeah. like multi-hook back for sure. bra. I'm not saying that it's wrong for them to do it. I just thought it was notable because I don't feel like I've seen 
like I've definitely seen bras that open in the front mm-hmm. in porn, but I don't know that I've seen a film where they all open. Yeah, in the like front. um, the woman in the first scene had kind of a bustier that like unzipped and stuff. So that was that opened from the front, but it wasn't exactly the same thing. No. But this woman in red uh, unclasps her bra from the front. We get some smooth jazz and electric guitar. Yeah, uh, I, the music in this movie is good. I yeah. like it a lot. Um, so it starts out with some like real pulsing like synthesizer stuff at the beginning. That's right, kind of like a little bit John Carpenter. Yeah, um, I could see that. And then it kind of goes like when he's in the blue room, it's more like another thing that made me think of Twin Peaks was just that kind of like that snapping finger kind of jazz oh, they have yeah, going yeah. on in the back while she's just talking nonsense right <laughs> and i was like oh yeah so yeah it's it's good there's a lot of guitar uh in this room the woman tells him to eat her so she goes down on him or he goes down on her right and she he kisses all over her and they do that for a while and then we cut to him laying down and she starts blowing him and she tells him to tell her when he's about to come. And so they go at it for a minute. Then he says he's coming. And then she stops and tells Alan that he has one more door, one more room. So he stops at the end of that act mm-hmm. and uh, moves on to the black room. Yes. It's a very black room. Like everything except for the two people is pretty much engulfed in shadow. Right. It's very nice. Uh, so along the way, he keeps losing uh, pieces of clothing. In the uh, the first room, he walked in dressed up in his business mm-hmm. attire. In the second room, he was shirtless but in khaki pants. But then in this third room, the black room, he's completely naked when we cut to him in there. Mm-hmm. Very symbolic. He's being stripped of his old identity to become a new. <laughs> So he asks, what the fuck is going on here anyway? And the woman in the room in a black bra and panties, garters, and thigh highs. Mm -hmm. She tells him that they were hoping that he would have guessed by now. And he says, well, I haven't. Uh, She tells him that a man has to give up certain things to get certain things. There's always a trade-off. He asks, what am I getting? She tells him what you want most, power. But only on one condition. What's that, he asks, that you renounce love. Can you renounce love? He says, I can. Will you renounce love? He says, I will. Then she says, then come and fuck me. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So he goes over and he unclasps her bra from the front, Mm -hmm. removes her panties and starts to go down on her and finger her. She has a, like a... A birthmark on one of her breasts. Oh, yeah. It's pretty noticeable. It's kind of like a big, like, mole mass that I focused on the whole time I watched the scene. (laughs) At first, I couldn't figure out if it was maybe, like, a piece of something, but the more I looked, I was like, I think it's on there for good. Right. Uh, Do you know who plays her? Uh, She is played by the woman in black, or girl in black, Uh as Tish Tish Ambrose. Ambrose. Okay, that's who I thought it was. It's a pretty distinctive mark. I don't know if she's been in anything else. Would you maybe remember it from memory? I don't recall seeing it, but I'm sure I've seen it. You've probably seen a lot of bodily um, anomalies at this point. Yeah. Like, we watched, was it 
erotic nights of the living dead or something oh, yeah. and the guy had that big wart like he had his, several warts i'm pretty sure he had a vd yeah it was not pleasant <laughs> i feel that's that's one we'll probably cover at some point i think porno holocaust is of the two diamato uh mm-hmm. horror uh pornish things uh porno holocaust is uh has more sex in it and it's weirder and better Erotic Nights of the Living Dead, I thought, was kind of boring. Yeah. I fell asleep, so I don't really remember much beyond when seeing that man's horribly warped genitals. If I remember correctly, that's the only hardcore scene in the film, and there's a bunch of tits and Laura Gimster's there, but she's not even, if I recall correctly, she's not even that involved in the plot. That's bullshit. Um, I don't know. Like, Joe D'Amato films are interesting because, like, his best films have moments in them that are just amazing. But his problem is that outside of his amazing moments, a lot of his films are kind of boring. Yeah, I think uh, I watched one of like his women in prison movies. I yeah. had Laura Gimser, but I think I shut it off about halfway through because I was like, I can't follow this and I'm very bored. I'm going to do yeah. something else. Well, it's like uh, he, he's got those movies, Anthropophagus and Absurd. Yeah. And both of those are movies that have some great moments in yeah, them. Yeah, you said that about uh, Anthropophagus before. Yeah. Uh, I just saw Absurd a couple <laughs> weeks ago, um, so I might not have talked to you about that one. But, no. like, Anthropophagus has, like, two or three scenes that are just like best in class horror scenes. Mm -hmm. And then it also has like 80 minutes of like barely anything happening. That sounds about right for Joe, old Joe. So it's, it's one of those movies that's probably worth seeing or at least like fast forwarding through Mm -hmm. and watching the good scenes because they're great. Um, but like he has some movies that are pretty good all the way through. Like, uh, the, the Black Emanuel movies oh, that I've seen great. of his. Yeah, um, definitely talk about some of those. Right. Those are great. Uh, Emmanuel and Francois, which mm-hmm. is unrelated, but uh, great also. Yeah. Uh, granted, he ripped that off of another movie, but, but his movie is better than the other movie slightly. That's all that matters. Is you can take someone else's idea as long as you do it better, it's fine. Yeah. Emmanuel and Francois is a non-official adaptation of a greek exploitation film the wild pussycat Mm. and they're both very similar which is to say that the wild pussycat is a very good movie but emmanuel and francois takes it to the next level of weirdness like the weird psychedelic uh cannibal stuff like that wasn't in the wild pussycat but like the general uh conceit of the film which is that a woman captures a guy who is beating up on her sister yeah and uh keeps him in a room chained up and makes him watch them her have sex with people and stuff that yeah. that all happened in the movie and it was great for it i have to check that one out the like it's almost cat. minute in a minute like it's almost minute by minute the same movie it's a it's a good movie just throwing cannibalism and you have a perfect movie though right exactly yeah. <laughs> Um, but back to the black room. So yeah, the black room. He's going down on her and she's looking all bored. He's Then he starts having sex with her and she's bored. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
this is where the like shadowiness of the movie really starts to be noticeable because they're mm-hmm. in this really dark room to right. begin with and you see a lot of shadows in the sex scene yeah so he ends up finishing and uh she tells him don't come inside me and he pulls out and comes on her ass crack and then mm-hmm. she barks at him now leave so we see him walking out uh, into the weird garage-looking room that the woman at the desk was at. But the woman's no longer at the desk. We just see a briefcase on it. So he's looking kind of disheveled at this point. He's mm-hmm. back in his clothes, but he's almost kind of just shuffling. Yeah. Um, he's worn out from all the sex, I guess. Yeah, I would be too. He went through a real um, ordeal. Yeah, he did. Today. He became a man. <laughs> So, uh, we cut from there to see Williams and Doreen walking into a house together. Uh, Doreen calls for Felicia. They determine she's not home, and Williams says it seems like she's never home. Doreen says she comes and goes, and it's explained that Felicia is Doreen's sister. Mm -hmm. Which I missed completely, because I was like, when they cut to her a little later, I was like, who is this? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So... Williams is looking a bit sullen at this point, and Doreen points it out. She says that negotiation takes a lot out of him, and Williams notes that it wasn't a negotiation. It was an ultimatum. She tries to calm him a bit and says it's only business. She kisses him, and Williams says that and business don't mix. She stands up and asks, who says they have to? But a man does have certain obligations, and she walks off. Now... Certain obligations is a term that comes up in this film a few times okay. that I think is interesting from a script perspective. Yeah. So from there, we cut to they're in the bedroom now, and Williams is naked in the bed. Doreen asks him if he loves her. He says, you know I do. She asks him why. What kind of question is that? Yeah, that, yeah. that's just that's just getting uh, ready for a fight to happen right. instead of sex. Yeah, don't. Don't do that. That's a bad move. So she's undressing, and William says, well, you don't ask for much. She says, but you give me everything I want. But he notes that she doesn't want anything. She walks over and gets on the bed and kisses him. She points out that he seems worried, but he says there's too much tied up in this not to be worried. She tells him she can make him forget, at least for a little while, and she starts to blow him. Again, this is another, like, big shadowy scene yeah another very shadowy scene from there after a moment she gets on top of him and he's fucking her from below she tells him don't come inside me and he pulls out and strokes to finish and comes mostly on his legs and he pushes it back into her he asks her at this point when she's going back on the pill she says the doctor says never and he tells her to get a new doctor (laughs) So from there, he gets up, and she asks where he's going, and he says he's leaving to go see some people. She says it can wait. You get um, some very well-lit, slow-mo Jamie Gillis ass cheeks as he crosses the room at this point. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Very lovingly shot. Yeah, for sure. He, uh, Larry Ravine has an eye for... For cheeks. For cheeks. An (laughs) eye for cheeks. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, she tries to tell him that it can wait, but he says it can't. You know that. But tomorrow this will all be over. So he then looks outside and we get this really bizarre sequence Mm -hmm. 
where we see some shots of the city, like statues, a bunch of people walking around. Right. Like through this square that I think is a train station or something yeah, like that. There's an ad for a Vita up. So. Yeah, there's a there's a Newsweek clock and. Yeah. I was like waiting to see either Williams or some other character from this film to pop up, but they never do. He's just looking out his window. Yeah. And just taking in the the beautifully shot uh, work of Larry Ravine. Yeah. That he sees every time he looks outside. Yeah. Which must be nice, really. Yeah, I think that, you know, that's part of that kind of love for the seedy days of New York City. Yeah. It definitely, it's definitely, it feels like a very seedy little train station. You can tell that Jamie Gillis would want his ashes around there. Yeah, definitely. So we cut from all of this to, uh, I think we see Williams again looking through the window at the end of this montage. And then we cut from there to a woman looking in the mirror that we haven't seen yet. Now this is Felicia, Doreen's sister, played by Kelly Nichols. Uh, she's got this semi-transparent bra and panty set that's uh, like purple with white thigh highs. Williams walks through a door. Uh, we see him going through what I believe would be his and Doreen's bedroom or mm-hmm. Doreen's bedroom. I don't right. know what the living situation really is. I don't get a look at the house, the floor plan. But he ends up walking by the doorway to this room where Felicia's at. She takes her bra off. Uh, I didn't leave a note. I think it's from the front again, though. Probably. Uh, And she lays on the bed and basically starts masturbating Mm -hmm. here. Uh, And then Williams walks by and sees her through the crack of the door and just sits there and watches her for a while while she's going at it. She goes at it for a while. She seems to climax. And as she does, Jamie slowly kind of pushes the door to. It doesn't click, but pushes it shuttish. From there, we cut to a smoky room, and we see a man in a leather jacket from behind, and then we see a woman in a sheer white robe dancing around. Yes. Uh, this dancer's played by Nicole Bernard. Mm-hmm. She turns around, and we see that she's topless and wearing just white panties under the weird robe. The guy turns around, and we get to see Larry for the first time, played by Bobby Astor. He does a great job. Yeah, he's great. Uh, he's I love one of him. my favorite characters in this movie yeah. uh the he has a perfect line of dialogue in the scene yeah. uh, did you note it uh i don't know we'll see okay uh but uh he's great uh he does not have sex in this film no he's just um, kind of like a hired goon right but he's great in this film yeah he does have sex in other films but not this one uh but he's awesome yeah he's kind of got like a joe pesci kind of like wise guy quality to him uh but yeah uh larry is william's half brother yes williams's half brother Mm -hmm. and he is his uh seedy brother no definitely um so the woman's gyrating and shaking it to like generic roadhouse blues music yeah it's some george thurgood bullshit (laughs) (laughs) so he's sitting at a bar and williams walks up he, he asks Williams what he's doing here, uh, noting that this place is too decadent for Williams's taste. Um, I think that I did note the line that you're thinking about, uh, because he says that he'd drink a mile of piss just to see this dancer's pussy. Yes, that's exactly the line. <laughs> 
I can... wonderful line, perfectly executed. Like it's not even like it's not even that he would drink a gallon of piss. It's a mile. It's a mile. Which is the strangest way to measure a, a liquid. Uh, they do yards of beer, right? I think they do. So, so maybe it's whatever the number of feet yards, in a mile is yeah, divided by yards. three, and that's that many yards of beer. And he just has to like drink them out of those yard-long glasses as he goes. Jeez, he's going to be sick. Yeah, that's going to be tough. You don't want to drink that much piss all at once. It'll really upset your belly. So a mile is 5,000... 280 feet. I always think it's 63 feet. I don't know where that came from, but yeah. You do some math, I'm going to urinate a mile. (laughs) So, that would mean that Larry would have to drink 660 yards of piss. Uh, Would go into a mile of piss. I think that's too much. Jeremy notes that that is too much piss to drink. And I would agree. I think that a human stomach just can't process all that piss. There's too much piss in a mile of piss for one to fit anywhere near their digestive tract. Maybe if they were sitting on the toilet the whole time and could re-piss the piss. Yeah, that would probably be fine. Just let the kidneys reprocess it. But, I don't know, you're just going to get a stomach ache. Yeah, I think that... Like, generally speaking, you're probably not supposed to drink piss anyway. Mm-hmm. But, like, if you do drink piss, a mile of piss is way too much for your body. Definitely. Uh, enjoy piss in moderation. Yeah. I mean, I think that maybe if you work your way up to a mile of piss, like, I if you know. start by drinking one yard of piss a day, uh-huh. and then you drink, like, three yards of piss, yeah. and then next thing you know, you're drinking 660 yards of piss every day. They lined up end to end, so you know you've gone a full mile. I'd like to think so. I'd like to think that you just have, like, the yards of piss sealed, yeah. and then laying end to end, like, going like down, down your the street. Highway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then you just walk walk a few feet, pick up the next one, drink the yard of piss, That's going to be refreshing on a hot day, I guess, at least. I don't know. I feel I don't like... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> if you refrigerate it. <laughs> I don't know how refreshing piss is as a drink. Uh, not very. Probably not. No. I I haven't drank enough piss to know for sure. I've drank just enough to know. <laughs> <laughs> I get a tummy ache. I'm not a I'm not a big fan. <laughs> so Williams tells Larry that he always had a way with words uh, about his line about piss and such. Yeah. The mile of piss. <laughs> oh, I wrote uh, a note. Uh, I wrote his quote: uh, "Drink a mile of piss to see your pussy." Then my note was, "But you can see her mullet for free." <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there's definitely some '80s hair going on in this film in a big way. Mm-hmm. So Larry notes, "Isn't it interesting how guys never get tired of watching some half-wasted broad shake her ass?" So Williams isn't really playing into Larry's uh, dialogue here. He tells Larry that he needs some information. Larry notes that it's amazing that the only time he gets to see Williams is when he needs something. Williams tells him that he'll make it worth his while. 
Larry says, my own brother is going to make it worth my while. Williams notes, half-brother. Larry says, but you get a whole Larry when you need him, don't you? I mean, every time you come down to our humble sewer, you always manage to find me down here swimming in this shit. It should note he's the only person in the bar. There doesn't even seem to be a bartender. Yeah, there there isn't. It's just them and the we'll dancing girl. Yeah, when once they leave, she keeps dancing. Yeah. To no one. It's just maybe that's the part that's like flash dance is that she just dances <laughs> like no one's watching because no one is watching. Right. <laughs> so Larry asked Williams what he wants, and Williams said that he had uh, sent a messenger on his behalf. Larry asked Alan. William asks Larry how he knows who he's talking about, and Larry notes that we're all one big family down here. Williams asks where Alan is, and Larry says, I don't know. So William starts to get up, and Larry says he doesn't know, but he has an idea, and he tells Williams to have a beer and enjoy the show. Williams tells Larry that he's in a hurry, and Larry tells him, don't be, the night's young. Williams continues heading his way out of the room, and Larry is sitting there still for a moment, watching the dancer, and finally he gets up and follows Williams. Yes. So the woman's still shaking it as they leave, of course, to mm-hmm. nobody, but we cut to black from there, and we see Williams and Larry walking through the dark, and then we see the staircase from the opening where yeah. we saw the credits, and we yeah, see yeah. Uh, Larry and Williams walk down. A lot of smoke emanating from the right. There's a lot of smoke. I yeah, feel like there's a lot of smoke coming out very... of it. It's a descent into the underworld, and they're not very subtle about it. No, it's not at all. They're like a hell mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Williams asks Larry what kind of place this is, and Larry tells him the kind of place to find his man. We're going to have fun tonight. I can smell it. And he <laughs>, laughs a bit, and they descend down those steps. Um, so then we end up in a hallway with red doors. So this is an interesting sequence here for a lot of reasons. <laughs> The general idea here is Williams is in a rush to find Alan. Yeah. But Larry just repeatedly sandbags Williams and wants him to stop and look at all this. So there's a room where there are three doors, mm-hmm. and Williams stops and looks through the doors at Larry's constant uh, prodding. Prodding and forcing. Because Williams keeps wanting to move on, but Larry keeps telling him to watch right. through the peepholes. So. They walk up to the first peephole, and Williams looks through, and we see a woman in the shower. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the peephole would never allow the woman in the shower to be seen based right. on its position. Yeah. Um, there is... it. Does, the peephole does face like a medicine cabinet, but the medicine cabinet isn't open at, like, at an angle where you so would you be, able be able to, to see the, the woman. bounce off the mirror. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the, the shower is... Uh, if you're looking into the room, it's far to the left of the doorway, so you would not see it through the peephole. But let's not get too tangled up in that no, for the that's... moment. So there's a woman showering, and she gets out of the shower. She's still got some soap on her. I think it's another waterless shower. They do show an overhead shot where the like the water spigots on, but then in like all subsequent shots, they don't show it. And when she oh, goes yeah. to turn it off at the end, she sticks her head directly under the shower head, but comes out with dry hair oh i didn't notice that yeah I'm, that's my mo now is just to check to make sure if people are actually taking showers or not <laughs> and i guess they aren't you're doing the lord's work yeah in a number of ways <laughs> so 
She gets out of the shower, and then another woman walks up, and they start, like, making out and going down on each other and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that th- those women, uh, I'm not sure which one is which, but lesbian number one, as she's credited, is yeah. Alexis X. Okay. And lesbian no- number two is Sabrina Vale. I would guess they would number them based on when they entered the scene. I would think so, that the woman in the shower was Alexis X, and mm-hmm. the woman who comes up out of nowhere is Sabrina Vale. Yeah, she looks like a Sabrina. She does look like a Sabrina, I think. A real teenage witch. Yes, exactly. Was this a blue room? No, it was like a white, white room, room where I think there were some red accents. Okay. But I think the second room is red and the third room is black. I feel like it's kind of like a mirror. No, I think the second room was more black. It might be. It was, there was like a lot of wood around the room. Yeah. whole lot of wood. <laughs> so, as Williams is finishing watching this, Larry says, What I tell you, that's just the beginning. So, Larry tells him to go look through the next peephole, and William says he doesn't have a lot of time. Larry tells him to consider it something he has to do. William says, I don't have to do anything. Larry says, I beg to differ. You've got to meet certain obligations, or you'll find yourself in a world of trouble. So he looks through the next peephole, and we see a woman in a leather bra and garters, and there's a gimp man in a mask crawling on the floor. Yes. So he has him lick her studded paddle and tells him to behave. She tells him to bark like a dog, so he's barking. And so she has him kiss her shoes and lick them and suck on those boots, she says. And then she tells him maybe he could suck them better without the mask. He takes the mask off, and it's Williams. (laughs) Williams is looking through the peephole, and he saw himself as the gimp boy. Could he actually see it, like, from the angle he was at at this one? Did you get the measurements of the room? Uh, Do you think he was just staring at nothing the whole time, and that's why he was bored and impatient? Perhaps. So Williams asks Larry, what the hell's going on here? Larry says, what's going on where, brother dear? Williams says, that man in there, he looks just like me. Larry says, but it's not you, is it? How can it be, after all? You're out here with me, right? And then he snickers and walks a little further down the hallway. (laughs) Larry tells him one more door. Williams protests again, but Larry says he doesn't have a choice. So he looks through the door, and there's this black, smoky room with a woman laying on a table or altar. Mm -hmm. There's some candles around the room, and there's this, like, fire pit dish in front of the table altar. It's called, like, a a brazier. A brazier? A brazier? I don't know. Brazier? I don't know. They... That's where all the fire comes from. So the woman on this table isn't moving, and we kind of get the impression here that she is dead. Oh, she's definitely dead. So we see this shirtless man wearing khakis with lipstick and white face paint and a top hat. Yeah. And he keeps saying, cold, cold. Cold. Um, That reminds me of a patient I had at the psych hospital (laughs) who would just one of the few things she would say was, it's cold outside. It's cold outside, but it was the middle of July, and it was not. Right. <laughs> um, but she would also say, there's bugs in my head. There's bugs in my head. Um, and later on, when I went into her room to check on her, I did see, like, a cockroach crawling around. So I think maybe she did have bugs in her head. Oh, well. Yeah. Uh, Nothing like that happens here. No, thank- not exactly. Thankfully. 
No, I think that the scene might have benefited from a cockroach crawling out of the woman, though. Oh, that would have been crazy. <laughs> Just crawling right up on old uh, George Payne's dick. Right. <laughs> so the man in the top hat, we'll call him at the moment, grabs the woman on the altar and opens up her gown from the front and starts rubbing her breasts. And then he walks to the foot of the table and grabs her by the ankles and pulls her down and slides her butt to the end of the table. Uh, this looks like it might have been a door just based off of the way that it's set up. I noticed kind of an indention the way that you would see on a door. Uh, I didn't catch that, but that sounds like... I think a lot of this movie was just shot in the one room. Perhaps. They just dressed up differently for each scene. Um, that would make a lot of sense. Yeah. So he pulls down her panties and laughs as he's fingering her vagina and rubbing the outside. And then he starts uh, penetrating it with his fingers. And he keeps laughing. And we notice that there's kind of a little bit of blood dripping out of her eyes. Mm-hmm. Williams here says he's seen enough. But Larry tells him, no, it's almost over. Watch. We see the top hat guy stick his dick inside of her and start fucking her. He's standing and she's laying on the end of the table and he keeps saying cold. What else would she do? She's dead. Right. Cold. So It's cold outside. (laughs) There are bugs in your head? Probably. Yeah. That's what happened to your teeth. All the bugs ate them. Bugs knocked my teeth out. (laughs) They crawled out of my skull and out of my mouth. And uh, took over my apartment. (laughs) So he leans over, uh, the top hat guy leans over and starts sucking on the nipples of this dead girl and keeps fucking her. And he pulls out and comes on her pubes and pushes back in. Williams asks if they can go now and Larry says, not just yet. And then we see the guy turn and look directly at Williams. At this point, we get to see his face. Williams recognizes that this is Alan, the person he was looking for. Yeah. Alan is laughing at him, and Williams loses his shit from this point. So, throughout this whole film, Williams has been, like, just really sullen and Mm -hmm. subtle. Uh, But at this point, he just blows up and starts banging on the door and screaming and yelling to open this fucking door and screaming and pounding. And Larry's just laughing. We get this awesome shot of... The woman with blood dripping out of her eye in stop motion. Yeah. Uh, In the special feature with Larry Ravine, Mm -hmm. he talks about how that shot was his idea and that most directors would have told him to go fuck himself at that point, basically. But Roger Watkins was like, yeah, let's do it. Uh, But he notes that most directors, because that effect took like an hour to get down for five seconds of film. Um, you know, most directors wouldn't have gone along with it, but it was pretty cool. No. Yeah. It was well done. I liked it. It And then she, you see her open her eyes (laughs) and then we cut away from that. I think you might see her breathing just a little bit while she's getting fucked too, but that's okay. You know, it's tough to keep your body completely still unless you're like a well-trained Batman type. Right. So then we cut to this weird scene where Alan, Williams, and Larry are sitting in this weird room. Alan says, you always liked imagination, Williams. Larry tells Alan he doesn't need to be cruel and says that they're here on business. Williams at this point is very insistent. He says he wants what's his and he wants it now. Alan's decided to only talk to Williams through Larry. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So he tells Larry to tell Williams that he's on his turf now and nobody makes demands here. Nobody but me. Alan says Williams owes him a thank you for the show he put on. You watched, didn't you? (laughs) And Larry says, well, he does have a point. (laughs) Williams says he wants what's his, nothing more, nothing less. Alan says it sounds like he's about to threaten him and he doesn't like threats. So Alan is super animated now compared to what he, what he was yeah. before. He was a he was a pretty just uh, very just even business dude before who was, you know, getting turned on by these uh, women. But, yeah. you know, those colored rooms turned him into a Batman villain. Yeah, basically. Pretty much. It's uh, yeah, but yeah, he's all jokered out right now yeah, basically very, yeah he looks like the joker he's very cryptic in the way he talks and doesn't address williams directly right so williams stands up and says that he wants what's his and larry tells him there are certain rules and protocols alan starts getting really heated and then tells him to sit down alan says what william wants he being alan has but he's selling it to the highest bidder William says, it's already mine. Alan tells Larry that his brother doesn't listen well. Larry says, Williams just doesn't understand how we do things down here. Alan says, down here is the same as up there. Why haven't you figured it out yet? Yeah, good line. So from there, we cut to Felicia in bed. Mm -hmm. And Felicia hears someone and yells, Doreen... But then Franklin walks in and says, hello, Felicia. Yeah, Franklin from about an hour ago, in case you forgot. Yeah, at the at the beginning of the film, the, <laughs> the shady person that Williams had done business with and had the negotiation that Williams said was more of an ultimatum. Mm-hmm. He has come to collect Felicia. So we cut back to the bar where the woman was dancing earlier and she's still dancing. Williams and Larry are at the bar. Larry says, she never stops dancing, does she? You'd think she'd get tired every once in a while. Williams is lost in thought and not engaging Larry in his bullshit, but Larry's just relaxed and watching the dancer. Larry says, you know what you did? You cut a deal with the wrong people. Williams says it was a good deal. Alan fucked it all up. Larry says, he was your man. Williams goes, he was my man. Larry says, you know what you gotta do, right? William says, I haven't done anything like that in a long time. Larry says, you want me to take care of it for you? Williams pauses, mulling this over. Then the bar payphone rings and Larry answers it. The dancing girl is still dancing away. Yeah, that's her job. Larry tells Williams that they have his girlfriend's sister, Felicia. He says, I guess they don't entirely trust you to come up with the goods. Thank God for Larry's exposition. Yeah. <laughs> Williams asks if it was Alan who took her, and Larry says it wasn't. So Williams gets up and walks away, but as he goes, Larry gets up and follows him a bit and says, Are you sure you want me to take care of this one? He doesn't reply, so Larry walks back to the bar and keeps watching. Um, I want to play the kiss pinball machine that they have. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't notice it. Yeah, it looks fun. I couldn't tell at first, but then it was just like... I S S and the little lights and I was like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, 
No one played that. They would rather watch this stripper who never entirely strips. Right. <laughs> not even really want to watch her because, once again, no one is there. Right. Before they come in, she's just dancing for herself. Right. What's going on? There, there's a lot of questions. So we cut to a bedroom and Franklin is in a suit laying on a bed uh, and he's talking to Felicia who's in the room with him. She's trying to open a door but she can't. Franklin tells her that everything up here is quite secure. Quite secure. She says that all hell will break loose when Williams finds out and Franklin tells her he already knows. Felicia says she wasn't part of the contract, whatever this contract was. Franklin says, well, but you are. So then we cut away from that, Felicia in some weird hostage situation, to Williams walking up to a character named Erda, E-R-D-A, played by Vanessa Del Rio. Mm -hmm. She's standing in front of an open window. He says he doesn't know what to do. They changed the rules on him. She says the rules don't change, just Just the the people playing the game. Yeah. Uh, she is the voice of reason in the film, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. She she has all of this, like, it, it comes out, I, I guess, like, it's not really explained who she is, but the the general impression is that she's a hooker that, uh, that yeah. Williams is seeing. Right. But she, she also appears to be maybe a fortune teller. Yeah, she has a mystic quality about her. Right. Um, what was I going to say about her? She's great. That's yeah. it. She's uh she's great. I don't think she's been in any of the movies that we've talked about yet. No, I don't think. But she's so. she's you know a big name in the era. Yeah, she's nice. I would like to see more of her. Yeah, she's you know the... she's relegated to a very small part in this film, but she mm-hmm. does a really good job with her little bit of dialogue. Yeah, she has a very small part, but she does well with her little bit of dialogue. Right. To um, paraphrase boss. <laughs> Well, I'm just saying that because there's so little dialogue right. for her. But what she did, she did well. Yeah, her. Sure. Well, uh, also her sex scene is good as well. It's probably I wasn't the... trying to say that to diminish her other contribution to the film. No, but uh, you it's know, probably one of the better sex scenes in the film. I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Williams asked how long he's been coming to her. She says that things will be changing soon, and Williams asks, "Better or worse?" And she says, "Just change." So we cut back from this shot of Williams and Erda to a slow-mo shot of Larry with a gun in the dark and Mm -hmm. puts it into his leather jacket while dramatic music plays. Then we cut from there to Erda stripping. Williams is laying in bed. She unclasps her bra from the front. Yes, I do remember that. Uh, Williams is... Slowly stroking his dong through uh, the fly in his pants that's unzipped. We cut back to Larry zipping up his jacket. He has a kind of upset look on his face. Yeah. And then we cut back to Williams and Del Rio kissing in the bed. Williams is naked and Del Rio's in her panties. Uh, Erda. Mm-hmm. Played by Del Rio. Yes. So then we cut to uh, Franklin ripping off Felicia's bra and tweaking at her nipples so we get kind of this back and forth where we get this sex scene with williams and mm-hmm. erda and then we get franklin basically raping felicia who yeah. he has captive as we're cutting back and forth between the two of them 
We then see Larry in the hallway with the red doors from earlier where the uh, peepholes were that mm-hmm. Williams was looking through. And in the distance, we hear some laughing. So Larry walks down the hallway and past where the camera is. And then we hear two gunshots. He's killed Alan. Uh, apparently, yes. Yes. So we heard him laughing before the gunshots, and we did not hear him laughing after the gunshots. One so funny then, bitch. <laughs> so we cut back to Erda and Williams having sex. Uh, she licks and sucks his balls. So those are, again, those ball lickers you were yeah, looking for. I know. I was very excited when she did that. It's it's just a it's a sign that somebody has attention to detail. It's a pretty enthusiastic oral sex scene. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Compared to some of them. Uh, there is a lot of uh, good cinematography in this scene with Williams and Erda. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some shots of them fucking where you see that through this like sheer purple curtain. Mm-hmm. Um, there is this what looked kind of like a dolly shot. Maybe it was handheld and just really steady or whatever, but kind of panning from the side of the bed to the foot of the bed. Yeah, that was a good shot. I like that. Uh, there's this shot where uh, I believe Erda was on top of Williams mm-hmm. and you see a sh- her shadow against the wall as she's riding him. Yeah. So that's good. Yeah, that was a very well shot scene. Meanwhile, we're still cutting back to Franklin and Felicia having sex. Uh, well, Franklin raping Felicia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he grabs her throat while he's banging her. And we're kind of cutting back and forth. Williams is banging Erda. And finally he pulls out and comes on her belly and you, pushes back in. He looks very small next to her like when they're having sex. Especially mm-hmm. like when she's on top because her thighs are so much bigger than his. He has right. like, these little chicken legs sticking out from <laughs> under her. It was just a very... like noticeable size difference between the two and she's not even like a very big person i think he just is very kind of scrawny right yeah (laughs) so felicia and franklin are still engaged in their act williams tells erda that he loves her you know that she says you needed me he says i still do she says no now there are others he tells her he won't be needing her anymore Franklin is still fucking Felicia. He says when Williams asked him to do his dirty work for him, they knew it was just a matter of time until they owned him. He says, I guess he knew that too. Otherwise, he wouldn't have sent that fool Alan on a man's errand. So he's still fucking her. And then we see Larry standing in a dark doorway. Franklin pulls out and comes on Felicia's ass. And Larry's watching them from the doorway franklin pushes back in and he's back to fucking felicia then larry says hey fellas franklin says nice to see you what's that you have in your hand there larry says oh it's an extraordinary contraption (laughs) it propels tiny lead projectiles at incredible velocities here let me show you what i mean and then he fires two shots and giggles and then he walks off slowly we cut back to Williams in bed, and his girlfriend, Doreen, is there in a black bra and garters and stockings. Williams just naked in bed. Doreen says, you know what I want? I want to get fucked. Not make love. I just want to fuck. Think you can accommodate that? 
William says, I don't know. Doreen says, his brother called while he was out. We pan down from Williams and we see that he's got his hand on the briefcase from earlier. He asks what Larry wanted and she says, he asked what it felt like being his partner. And then we get a dramatic freeze frame and a dramatic cue. Then we fade into a shot of Larry cackling in a smoky shot and then a freeze frame on his face and then red credits scroll. And that was corruption. That's corruption. So, Williams, he was a guy from up there, so to speak. Yes. And he got entangled in the people from down there. Both, I guess Franklin is like kind of one of those people that operates in both worlds, I would imagine. I guess so. Not anymore. Yeah. Not anymore. He doesn't operate in any worlds anymore. Yeah. Not any living worlds. Yeah. Williams got dragged down into the shit, and ultimately now he's indebted to Larry, and who knows where this is going to take him. Yeah. He was corrupted. No, no. He was a victim of, of corruption. corruption. Yes, absolutely. And we all could be. We all will be, one way or another. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. All right, so that was corruption, so... We will take another small break and then we will give our final thoughts on corruption. What you want, what I have, I'm selling to the highest bidder. What I want's already mine. Your brother, he doesn't listen too well, does he, Larry? He just doesn't understand the way we do things down here. Down here? the same as up there or haven't you figured that out yet enjoyable yeah Sallow's not a feel-good movie really no and it shouldn't be you know it is a feel-good movie field of dreams field of dreams angels in the outfield uh yes most the sandlot anything about baseball makes you feel good (laughs) i would not necessarily say that corruption is a feel-good movie no but um it's no, it's no hot and saucy pizza girls in that mm, respect. Yeah. I enjoyed watching it, though. It's like when you want to go from watching a hot and saucy pizza girls uh, to something more uh, substantial. I think corruption's a good choice. Yeah. I would say that if we go back to last week's episode, which would be Pulsating Flesh, yeah. uh, this movie is the opposite of Pulsating Flesh. It's good. Right. <laughs> um, well, in that sense, yes, of course. Uh it's very carefully put together. Um, all of the dialogue is super important. Yeah. Um, there, <laughs> there is, uh, there's no mystery really in uh, pulsating flesh. Except how he gets people pregnant when he never fucking comes in them. Well, I mean, it's his sperms. Just any sperms. That's the explanation. It's his sperms. It's his sperms. Uh, I drew one of his sperms. Look. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, good. (laughs) So, uh, as is tradition, I'm going to turn over uh, the podcast to Jeremy, our reviewer. Oh, yeah. That's me. Did you do it? Uh, I I am officially turning it over now. Okay, thank you. Um, I think I've pretty much, I've said a lot of what I... had planned as far as a review, I think it's a, 
I think it's a very well-made film with a, uh, a lot going for it as far as cinematography and acting and everything. I say of the adult films we've watched so far, it's probably been the one that's been closest to maybe like rivaling like uh, maybe like a Hollywood production. Um, and I think it's noir kind of bleakness even goes a little bit further than, say, Dixie Ray Hollywood star. Sure. Um, even though it's kind of a, a difference. They're not really detectives or anything, but there's just kind of that mystery of uh, what's going on. and Yeah, and there's a there's a world of crime element that right. would be welcome in the noir genre. Yeah, and I think uh, Larry Ravine, as I've said, does an excellent job capturing a lot of that seediness with his just uh, vibrant colors when they're there and then the very deep shadows even in those scenes. Right, right. Uh, acting all around. I don't think there's like a, dis- there's a disappointing performance from yeah, anyone. Yeah, for sure. Um, even from like small-time players like franklin or right uh, whoever uh, obviously uh who played larry larry was uh bobby astor bobby astor stole the film with his performance i think right um he kind of reminded me like i said earlier kind of like joe pesci but he also reminds me of drew a little bit <laughs> um i just could kind of see him playing the same sort of character if we expanded on his role from uh Oh, shit. I forgot the name of the movie. Oh, uh, Rent Rot. Rot. Yeah, if we expanded his private eye investigator role, I could see him taking a, a Larry-ish turn. What is his character's name again? Oh, fuck. Uh, he's a detective. It's, he has a terrible name. It, it's a it's a great name. It's uh, Edward Diodario. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Eddie Diodario. Eddie Diodario. Go to YouTube and just type in Rent Rot if you want to see a fine, fine film. <laughs> that's how i'm gonna end my review by suggesting you watch something that i made instead um no uh i haven't given a star rating yet but i'm gonna invent one now all right four and a half four and a half out of five yes all right four and a half out of five um a porn classic the sex is baffling <laughs> in a way that propels the plot along right uh it looks great. It sounds great. The The soundtrack is fantastic. Like everything from the guitar funk stuff to like the more like uh, Godfather kind of aria type pieces that kind of come up, you know, every now and then. I think that that's another example where this is the opposite of pulsating flesh. Yeah. Because the, the soundtrack in God. that infuriated you. Yeah, it made me so angry. It never stopped either. <laughs> So for like, not to go back to last week, but I'll yeah. go back to last week real quick. Uh, the soundtrack in Pulsating Flesh, I just completely tuned it out. So it was a non-issue to me because I just didn't notice it. No. I... Uh, but I would say that that's probably still a bad sign in the sense that I feel like pretty much every other movie that we've watched, we've talked a little bit more about yeah. the, the soundtrack. Yeah. And I've made notes about the soundtrack, but... For Pulsating Flesh, I made zero notes about it because I just didn't notice it. Pulsating Flesh gets a one and a half on my new star (laughs) system. Uh, On episode 10, we should go back and give stars to all of our films. We will reward them stars. Maybe we can come up with something more pornographic in the interim. Yeah, we'll we'll work on it. Yeah. We've got, uh, we're, we're working on episode 10 in a feverish way. Yeah, check back next week. Yeah. And see what we've designed yes see the 
machinations of our madness. <laughs> the yes, the, the yes, <laughs> yes, the yes. Uh, I would agree with everything you said about corruption. I like it. Um, I think that, like, there have been times where we talk about how things don't quite make sense in a film, and obviously pulsating flesh being one of those. Um, them. <laughs> uh, but even when we were talking about Dixie Ray Hollywood star, the hardcore version of that left a lot of uh, details out that yeah. kind of made the film feel kind of which i think is how i felt about corruption the first time i saw it but i think going back and watching it again um everything's there that you need to kind of get the plot right it in that sense i'm going to be very careful with this comparison but in a lot of senses it reminds me of something by either fulci or lynch in the I sense, definitely see Lynch there. As I said, I've already made Twin Peak comparisons. Yeah, well, and both of those directors do something similar in completely different ways. Both of them, the thing that I love most about their films is the tone that they're able to accomplish. Yeah, uh, they're very different tones. Mm-hmm. They go about it in different ways, but both of them, like the strength of everything that they do, is that they're able to put to put this certain tone into place i would say i don't understand about half the faulty films i've thought but i've never really thought that they've had like a tone problem like right it doesn't jump from being funny to being ultra gory right in a jarring way it's just all confusing and gory right well and that's the thing is like for example with Fulci, Fulci's films they're hard to understand at times, and I feel like a lot of the time it's just kind of because the films are a bit on the sloppy side. Mm-hmm. Lynch, his films are hard to understand, and I don't think that they're necessarily sloppy. I think in Lynch's case, he's got a lot of attention to detail and a lot of details, and he has like an explanation of the film in his head. Mm-hmm. But um, it is completely inscrutable if you're not David Lynch. Yeah. Uh, so that's why, like, when you read about Lynch films, there's always, like, fan theories, and there's, like, six or seven explanations for his film. Uh, you know, unless you're talking about something like Dune. Dune's pretty straightforward for what it is, but... Yeah. Did he uh, finish Dune? Didn't they, like, switch him out midway or something? I don't think... He wasn't switched out of the film, but, like... The, he didn't film like a lot of the script. Yeah, like you can tell that it's like half a movie because like there's a certain point where like Kyle MacLachlan's like coming to power or whatever mm-hmm. that like there's a couple of scenes and then like they just kind of move on. Like the second act of the film is like a couple scenes and then they move to the third act basically. <laughs> right. Uh, I've uh, seen the director's cut, which. Uh, it just supplements like a lot of storyboard stuff in for whatever's supposed to be happening. And, oh yeah, yeah. I don't think I've ever finished it. It always puts me to sleep. Yeah, Dune is not a good movie, but uh, I still found it interesting. I would say Corruption's a better movie than Dune. Yes, I would agree. Corruption is a great movie, but what I was getting at by talk, talking about tone is that. This is a movie that, much like in Fulci or Lynch's films, they don't really explain everything to mm-hmm. you. And there's, you know, 
you don't necessarily need to have it all explained to you to get the the plot of the film right. itself. So like the like, general, like the theme of uh, corruption, obviously. Right. Uh, like, <laughs> there's no explanation to what's inside the briefcase. There's no explanation to the actual terms of uh, Franklin's deal with Williams. Right. There's no explanation to all of the work that Franklin has done for Williams that he talks about at the beginning. There's no there's no specific explanation to Williams' relationship with Erda. Right. Um, although it's, you know, all of those things aren't really important to what happens during the runtime of the film, though. Then at the, kind of the end, it seems like there's kind of a double cross with Larry where maybe he had been orchestrating things in a way. Perhaps, but it, that's not really explained either. That's a that's a fan theory at this point. Yeah, the I will say that the end of the film I don't think landed with me the right way. Right, like there's this there's this freeze frame and this really dramatic sound cue, mm-hmm. and ultimately, like I was like, okay, <laughs> that was it. Like you know, he just it it it's all in rea- reaction to Doreen telling Williams that Larry asked what it felt like being his partner yeah but i think that that's meant to be just kind of the final step that confirms that williams has descended into corruption corruption so to speak but i don't know i feel like maybe that could have been done in a different way but when you consider everything else it's pretty great um you know again we've talked a lot about the cinematography Mm -hmm. it's really good this film looks great the choice to focus on like uh color schemes in those rooms at the Mm -hmm. beginning and uh the the um the idea of creating all these weird uh rooms in these underworld places Mm -hmm. both in the beginning with alan going through the three rooms and then later on with williams going down that hallway looking in three rooms it gave them an excuse to put in six sex scenes that yeah that are kind of that are kind of detached from the plot. I would, I guess the the last scene in the hallway with Alan is it's kind integrated of, with the plot, but it's not really what's happening in there isn't really important to the plot so much. It's right. just that Alan was in there. Yeah, but it gave them an excuse to just do a bunch of weird sex things, and I always appreciate. Yeah, overall, I mean, it's just a really great film um i would think i would say that based on the four roger watkins films that i've seen which would be last house on dead end street uh her name was lisa the pink ladies and corruption uh, i would say that to me corruption is the best of the crew um i think that last house on dead end street again not a uh adult film uh but it's a very interesting uh, early 70s exploitation horror mm-hmm. film uh it's really interesting but it's not it, it's very indie it's incredibly low budget mm-hmm. um, a lot of its charm is this really grimy and uh the cut on the uh vinegar syndrome blu-ray of corruption is kind of a, a grindhousey cut. Okay. They said a few years back that they were trying to put together like a, a full collector's you edition you version. That is that not uh, materialized yet? That hasn't materialized yet. From what I've read on message boards, it seems that they haven't been able to find good film elements for Last House on Dead End Street. 
But the bonus version on Corruption, it's a beat-up grindhouse print, and I think that it goes well with that film because it's just a really grimy film. I love it's it. great. Um, definitely have to check it out. But, uh, yeah, Corruption's the best out of those four that I've seen, and it, it lands on tone, and it's able to, you know, get your requisite sex in there, and there's good sex scenes with a lot of different flavors along the way. And uh, you have great performances all around, as you said. Uh, it's it's a great film. Sure is. So, uh, yeah, Corruption. Uh, again, it was put out on uh, Blu-ray by Vinegar Syndrome. Uh, so if you guys want to see it, you should get it because it's a great film. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh, Definitely. Uh, any last words on corruption? I would drink a mile of piss just to see her pussy. Truer words have never been said. Before we go, let me remind you to follow us on social media at Raincoat Report on Instagram and Twitter. If you need to email us, raincoatreport at gmail.com. And subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast client. Give us ratings and reviews. Help us get discovered by more people. We can build our cult of the teacher. Uh, we need more members to carry out the word of the teacher. Yes, the teacher is good. The teacher is great. The teacher let us eat chocolate cake. Yeah. Yes. Oh, man. Do you have any cake? I don't, unfortunately. I'm going to leave now. I don't blame you. All right. Well, on that note, for Jeremy, this is Boss, reminding you once again to help us keep 42nd Street alive, and don't forget your raincoat. Ha 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 